So um, as a church, we decided to work through the book of Colossians, and that's what we're doing. Uh, so for the last two weeks, Jamin did a really uh, great job of working through some passages that pretty much landed at the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ, which says uh, Christ is sufficient. Christ is uh, uh, surpassing anything else. Christ is all you need. And you see Paul uh, really double down in his language in really all letters and specifically the last few passages where he is trying to start the foundation of the gospel. And the foundation of the gospel is that the gospel is Christ. Christ is the gospel. Christ is the promised Messiah. He is is uh, the the child of God. He is um, our Savior, and it's the foundation of this book. So, so it's the foundation of, of the Bible. It's the foundation of every book in the Bible, and it's the foundation of this letter. And Paul is going to go on like he does in other letters he writes to really build on that foundation. He's going to uh, dive in deep. He's going to try to explain some 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 deep and, and in beautiful theology. But none of that can be done until we understand that Christ is. King, that Christ is all we need. And it, it, it's easy to preach through a letter um, from Paul. It's, it's easy to, to preach through a book in the New Testament and you feel like we're just continuing to preach the same message. Because I know for the last three uh, times I've taught out of the book of Colossians to you, um, my notes look really similar. I, I know this that like pretty much Paul has a theme of, of Christ's supremacy and, and submission and suffering. And after a while you're like, okay, I'm, I'm preaching the same thing. I hope people don't get tired of it. And I stumbled upon this quote from Martin Luther uh, when he was asked, why do you preach the same gospel, the same type of message every Sunday? And he's quoted by saying, because we forget it every single week. And I feel like that's so true with me, that, that standing in front of you, I know that Christ is King. And standing in front of you, I know that Christ is my Savior. But with the busyness and the hustle and the grind of life, it's easy to lose focus of the one true gospel. And that's why we're going to continue um, to always push back and, and to find ourselves uh, rooted in, in Scripture and rooted in the gospel of Christ. Okay, so if you would stand in honor and reverence of God's holy word, we're going to read uh, in, in my Bible, in my text, I don't know why I've done this, but I've put First Colossians every time in my notes. <laughs> so technically that's not wrong, uh, but there is only one Colossians. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 24 through <clears throat> 29. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may be present, everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy and his powerful works within me. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray over us and let us dive in. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have as your local church to meet together. God, thank you for the men and women in this room, your son and daughters, that we are able just to come in, open up your holy word, and just dwell. 
God, I pray for the next few minutes that the Spirit would just come, fill us up, and reveal your truths. God, I pray that the Spirit would come and the Spirit would move. I pray all things in your name for your glory. Amen. All right, so um, I love this particular passage because it has, it's one of those passages that if I read at first glance, I may move on to the next passage or I may, I may just say, hey, this is a transitional passage or this is a transitional uh, uh, cut through on Paul's letter. But when you dive into it and you pour over it, there are some beautiful truths that we forget. There's some beautiful truths um, that... Uh, we, we forget because we don't fully understand where Paul is coming for, from and what Paul is writing forth. So let's just break it down verse by verse and let's try to give it some context and uh, some meaning. So in verse 24 when he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Paul talks about suffering throughout all of his letters because Paul understood what it meant to suffer. Paul uh, lived a hard life, but it was full of joy, uh, of joy. Keep in mind that Paul is not saying, hey, I'm happy. And that's one of the, the major flaws in, in reading uh, uh, the, the inherent word of God and putting 2018 meaning into the words you hear in God's, uh, God's word. Because he's not calling you to be happy uh, for the sake of Christ. He's calling you to, to be joyful. He's saying, I rejoice in my suffering, the fact that I know that I am suffering for your sake. Um, happiness is, is a delusion, right? Like uh, joy is what God promises. There's nowhere in the Bible that, that the Word of God uh, promises uh, happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness can be taken away from you. Happiness is going to a one-year-old's birthday party not knowing you like Korean food and it turns out you love it. That's happiness. <laughs> um, but that can be taken away. Happiness is a, is a show you love on Netflix and it, it dropping and there's like 11 seasons. And you get to binge with no end in sight or a short line at Chipotle. I can go on and on and on, but all those things are fleeting, right? All those things can be changed. The line can get long. Wi-Fi uh, can be weak. There's, there's things that can stop and impede that happiness. It's fleeting. It's, it's momentary. But joy that comes from the hope of God will never and cannot be removed from you. And we see that time and time in the life of Paul. Paul writes about suffering while suffering. Paul put his money where his mouth is and how he lived his life. He said, I rejoice in my suffering. He's not saying I rejoice in my discomfort. He's not saying, hey, I'm mildly inconvenienced. He's saying I am suffering for the cause of Christ. But it's important, and we're going to hit this up later. I don't want to go too into it or I'll lose all my points towards the end. But the why matters with Paul. He always tells you why he's suffering. He's not just saying, I'm having a horrible day. He's saying, I'm suffering for your sake. And then he says a really controversial sentence if you just read it in of itself. He says, now I'm rejoicing in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. So um, I know as far as I'm concerned, uh, born and raised in the church, uh, enjoyed uh, the, the, the Sunday school that led to Bible studies, that led to small groups, that led to Bible college for me. And anytime you hear lacking in Christ's affliction, there's always 
going to be a red flag of like, no, no, no. I was taught at an early, early age that Christ is lacking in nothing. And that's 100% true. So what he is saying here, he is not saying that Christ is not sufficient. He is not saying that Christ's death, resurrection uh, from the grave is, is insufficient. What he is saying here is that the Christ, the body, the church, there is work left to do. So hear this out. You do not leave without uh, understanding this. Christ's death and resurrection from the grave is all you need to believe in for salvation. His work is complete. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. What Paul is saying here is there is suffering left to do. The suffering of, of the believer did not end with Christ's life. It began. You see all throughout the New Testament, all through the book of Acts, all throughout Paul's letters, that there are men and women dedicated and radically believing in the cause of Christ, planting the New Testament churches with suffering uh, upon suffering because they understand that when you are trying to spread the word of God, you will continuously be attacked by Satan. You will continue have have rough days, uh, rough seasons, but all of that is the continuation of what God has called us to do, which is to suffer for His sake. All right. Then we move to verse 25 when Paul talks about I, he became a minister, he became a preacher, he became a church planner, um, being a steward uh, for, uh, for God, being a steward of what God had revealed to him. So Paul writes a lot. Paul is a theologian of theologians. He writes theology. We study theology. Paul writes theology. So what he writes and what he uh, pens is, is clearly revelations. They're clearly uh, God-ordained spiritual. Spirit uh, driven knowledge. Paul is not just this guy that happened to understand a lot better than everyone else and was able to pen the book of Romans. If you walk through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, it is the epicenter of what we believe today. It is the, um, the totality of this, this complex theology that Paul writes. All of that was revealed to him so that he could be about the, the, the work of Christ and he could be about the building of uh, God's church. It was not revealed to him so he could have a bunch of knowledge. And Paul is very clear about that. Paul says, I know a lot. A lot has been revealed to me. He is not shy about telling you that he is... He is uh, up on his knowledge of theology. And it, it can come off a little cocky if you don't understand where Paul's coming from. Paul is not being arrogant about all this knowledge that he put um, the time in for in, in studying and Bible studies. He's saying, no, this was given to me by the Spirit. The Spirit revealed this to me. Uh, the Spirit uh, embodied me. He, he penned the, the, the books that I wrote. Um, I am just a vessel. And Paul does a really good job of continually keeping himself humble, humble understanding Sorry. He is just a vessel. And Paul says, I have been a steward for the Gentiles. So, um... A little back history. So there's two really main uh, church planters in the, in the New Testament. You have Peter and you have Paul. And there's a lot more, and there are a lot more faithful men that followed them. But if you're going to say the two, the, uh, the preeminent men of the New Testament as far as planting is Peter and Paul. So Peter ministered primarily to the Jews, and Paul ministered primarily to the Gentiles. That's really big. That's really important for us because we're not Jews. Because of the, the, the churches that Paul planted, because of his uh, calling and because of him answering the call to the Gentiles, we now know Christ as our Savior. And he was a steward um, of God's knowledge because he was compelled to.
to act. And that's really what all knowledge of our Savior, all knowledge of the Bible should do. It is okay, um, and there's nothing wrong with, with Bible study um, purely for a, a, a uh, uh, what am I trying to say? There's nothing um, uh, wrong in of itself of learning as much as you can for your own uh, spiritual formation, but that knowledge has to compel you to act. That knowledge in of itself is never meant just so you can really have a great understanding of, of your faith and, and it stops there. Um, that's the beginning of, of our calling. That's the beginning of where knowledge should start as far as you uh, diving into your faith, understanding the theology, understanding um, what this book means and, and what it is calling you to do. But in, in no way is there a time where it's just a, a self-fulfilling knowledge. All knowledge should compel you to teach. All knowledge should compel you to act and spread the gospel. So in verses 26 through 27, then he moves into saying, hey, there's this mystery. I'm revealing a mystery um, onto, into the Gentiles and, and the riches of the glory and the mystery which is Christ in you. So this mystery is really just God's redemptive work through the Messiah. Where he is saying, hey, um, for years and, and generations and generations of people, um, the, the complete plan of redemption, which is Jesus Christ, uh, was hidden to uh, thousands and tons of people. Gentiles upon Gentiles uh, lived and died and did not know about God's redemptive plan. But for now, they do. Now it has been revealed to Paul and through Paul the Gentiles. And now God is saying, I, I'm, I'm for all. My salvation is for all. My redemptive plan is for all. And, and my love, hope, joy, peace, all of that is for everyone. One of my favorite lines in this passage is when it says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is our hope. Christ is our peace. Christ is um, the preeminence of glory. So God himself in the person of Christ will be directly and personally present in your life as his people. His presence assures us of the future hope when Christ returns. So when he says Christ is your hope, Christ is your glory, he is saying, hey, it is it is part of my redemptive plan to have uh, the Spirit walk alongside you and fill you with hope of, of a better day. Fill you of hope with um, the second coming of Messiah when, when there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more death. And that understanding, the understanding that yes, uh, life is hard. Yes, um, things don't go our way. Yes, there is brokenness, there is sin, there is sadness. All of those things are true, but all of those are inside the spectrum of God is promising us a hope that will not and cannot fail. He is promising us a redemptive plan that brings at the end of this age a new world where there is no more pain. There is no more hurt. And that is what uh, prompts Paul to live the life he is living. It's what prompts uh, the, the founding members, the leaders of the New Testament church throughout uh, uh, the New Testament where they are living uh, with open abandonment. They're living a radical life that completely is in tune with the idea that, yes, this life is hard. This life is fleeting. Um, me following my, my faith will probably end my life. I will probably be martyred, but that's okay because I've been called to a higher power. There is a peace that passes understanding that's coming in the new hope in glory of Christ. And then he ends this passage with saying, hey, I'm struggling with all of his 
energy. I toil. I struggle with all his energy that the power may be work through me. So what he's saying is, hey, there is a hope that drives us. There's a hope that motivates us and gives us endurance through the suffering, through the toil, through the struggle. But you have to understand where that hope comes from. Uh, Paul um, always doubles down on rejoice. He says rejoice always numerous times in his letters where he says rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He's calling you to rejoice because he is instilling you the hope that should drive you, the hope that should sustain you. It's why he begins his letter. It's why he specifically begins this letter with the preeminence of Christ. Because if you understand the gospel of Christ, you understand that Christ is Messiah. He is the promised child of God. He's the promised lamb of God that through his death and resurrection there is salvation and there is a time when he is coming back to make all things new. If you understand that, if that's where your foundation is, then you can suffer with joy. You can rejoice always. I know there's been so many times in my life where I, I've laughed or was just angry at the idea of rejoice always. But we have to go back and remember that Paul is not calling us to be happy always. He is calling us to rejoice. He's calling us to be filled with joy. And one of the main points of this passage, I want us to understand that we can struggle well. We can struggle in joy. Paul lived a really hard life. Uh, Paul caught beating after beating. Um, he caught uh, a torture session after torture session. Um, he was imprisoned uh, numerous times. Um, there's a book about the life of Paul um, that I read in college, and I don't remember the name of it. This would have been a great avenue to actually promote that to you, but it's been a busy week. So just trust me, there's a book out there. It's about Paul. Um, and one whole chapter about this book, it goes into Paul's back. It is a very literal uh, book about all the beatings and, and stonings and injuries he took just on his back. And it talked about um, a real-world synopsis of what it would have been like to live like Paul in, in, the, in the modern day as far as this the pain. Every moment. Because I think we think, uh, or I think we read some of this stuff and it doesn't sink in because we're thinking, they're Superman. This is Paul. This guy writes theology, I study theology, we're not on the same page. All Paul is is a faithful vessel. All Paul is is a man who was called out on the road to Damascus and said yes. Satan wants you to think Paul's a superman and you can't live up to that. Satan wants you to think that this is a different version of Christianity. Like he's the LeBron of Christianity and you're a scrub. That's not true. That is an absolute lie. And for you to think that actually just takes glory and power away from God. Paul is a faithful, faithful man. I'm not discounting Paul. Again, he writes theology and we study theology. But at the end of the day, Paul is a human, broken man. And this book goes on to detail just what an everyday life would be like with Paul through the pains he's already suffered. So Paul lost his life to martyrdom, but before that he caught beating after beating, and he was in racks and racks. He was stoned and walked away, and walked away from it that not a lot of people did. Paul was beaten, tortured, all for the gospel of Christ. He, Paul lived out his faith in complete submission, and he wrote accordingly. He wrote holding us to the same accountability. If you, if you want to, turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at uh, chapter 11, verses 25 through 33. I'm going to do a synopsis of some and read some, literally, but I want to just give you an account of how Paul suffered. In verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked at night and at day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the cities, dangers in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from the false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in the cold and exposed. Verse 28, this one hits hard. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the church. So Paul's giving you a breakdown of like what suffering actually means. Because the American dream that we live in in 2018 is geared to yearn for comfort. A lot of the decisions we make are based on the comfort level we can achieve. Can I, can I get a more comfortable car? Can I get a nicer car? Can I get more comfortable pants? Can I get a, a better version of food? Can I do this and can I do that? We've utterly lost the concept of suffering. We've lost the concept of what it is to struggle and toil for the cause of Christ. And, and I'm not saying that you're going to be beaten and tortured. Uh, we are blessed to live in a country where we are able to live out our, our religious freedoms um, without fear of persecution. Um, but the irony is that freedom has made us even softer. It does not, that freedom does not embolden us to shout out the gospel of Christ. It actually makes us even softer. The American church has the most freedom with the least declaration of, a Jesus, of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And that's eye-opening, right? Paul's calling us to suffer, and we're not even sure. I'm not sure we could find a way to suffer in the confines of what Paul's talking about. But it's very real around the world. There are, there are Christians being martyred every day. And it's important for us to ask ourselves, are we suffering for the cause of Christ? Are we making decisions that regardless of comfort we know to be right for what we are called to do? Or are we, uh, are we leaning into the comforts of America? Are we leaning in to the fact that we know at the end of the day no one's coming through that door? We know at the end of the day um, we can always just come back to Sunday at 5 o'clock and we can be around the people we love and, and we can read the Bible we love and we can sing the songs we sing, but it's really going to cost us nothing. Paul is calling us to struggle because he understood that is what it takes to build God's church. That is what it takes to spread the gospel of Christ. If you're not suffering, if, you're, if your life is, is made up of just continual decisions that bring you more comfort, I want to ask you to check yourself. And some of it's reflective. Some of it I want to say, are you suffering? Some of you are. Some of you are hanging on by, by a thread for the gospel of Christ. And again, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with the blessings of Jesus Christ and, and some of their comforts. There's nothing wrong with a roof over your head, uh, three meals a day, and a safe car. Hear me out. Satan absolutely wants to get in your head and distort that. He wants you to hear me say, hey, sell everything and live under a bridge for the cause of Christ. I don't want you to do that unless God's calling you to do it. And, I don't, and if He is, I don't want you to hesitate. That's all I'm saying. If God is calling you to live the life you're living right now, then the only way you're going to be happy is to live out God's calling. If God is calling you to live a different life, then you'll be miserable until the day you submit to the will of God. Paul is telling us to submit because Paul submitted. Paul's submission led to suffering. 
Most of the people we, we claim to follow in this book, their submission to their faith costs them suffering, pain, and ultimately their life. And I realize the culture is different. I realize that. But what I'm asking us to see, hey, is it really that much difference inside the world or are we just in the American bubble of comfort? Because there are people um, that don't know where their next meal is coming from that are boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And there are people that have more food than they know what to do with and they're throwing it out and they know Jesus, but they're just going to keep coming to church and hope no one notices they're lukewarm. The why matters though. We are called to live a certain way because we are the sons and daughters of God. The why, the why matters in all things. We're following uh, a faithful man, Paul, in this letter, who lives a motto of to live as Christ is to die is gain. And the why matters in that sentence. He is not calling us, the Spirit is not calling us to be blindly ignorant and just to do whatever. He's saying, no, I want you to understand the hope. And once you understand the hope, then the suffering doesn't matter, the toil doesn't matter. Because to live is Christ and to die is be with our Savior. We will struggle for the cause of Christ. There is no doubt. If you're living out God's will for you, if you're answering yes, if you're living in complete submission, you will struggle for the cause of Christ. There's no evidence in this Bible or in any reasonable understanding of faith to think life is promised to be easy once you say yes to Christ. It's actually quite the opposite. We see in John 16.33 where uh, uh, Christ writes, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he is saying, in me, in Christ, you will have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. So we're going to live through those tribulations. We're going to live through those hard times, understanding that we have hope and peace that is promised to us by a Savior. We have hope and peace that's promised to us by God who cannot lie, and that hope cannot be taken away from us. There's a sign in my house called, It Is Well. It's from the popular song, It is well in my soul. I don't know why I just sang that. That was kind of weird. We're going to change that. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, right? That's what was the teaching moment for us. That's the song. If you had any doubt of what song I was talking about, that's it. And I'll be frank with you. There are times in my life where I thought that was stupid. Where I thought, no, it's not well. It's not close to well. I can't see well. I don't feel well. I couldn't be further apart from well. Because I was confusing well with okay. It's not okay. This world is not okay. This sin that has broken this world is not okay. But it is well because of the hope we have in Christ. I work in crimes against children. That is a, a, a beautiful loss of life that we need to try to prevent. So we come alongside and we try to do the best we can. And because of my job here, and because of the opportunity I have to be an ordained pastor, uh, it was decided that I was going to do the death notifications. So I got to come alongside these families and tell them the worst thing that they could ever be told. And every one of them asked me, "This is the essence. Will we ever be okay?" And the truth is, no. You will never be the same. You will never be okay. But it is well. 
Now, I didn't tell them there at that moment. That's not really the time. But that's the truth of the matter, is that we've confused it as well with, it, with it's okay. No, the pain you feel is not okay. No, the brokenness of this world is not okay. If it was okay, there would not be a Messiah. It is not okay, so Messiah comes because okay will one day turn to well. It is well because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. We struggle and suffer because we know this world is not our home. There is a day when Christ will return and He will make all things new. And that fact that cannot be taken away from us will sustain us when the world is not okay. I, I had a hard week this week, honestly, with that. And the culmination of, like, the roughest month of my unit's history um, as far as, as tragedy. And um, one of the things that sustains me uh, is I'm not, I'm not a, a bubbly person, right? Like, I'm not full of emotion. No one would confuse me as a hugger. Um, but I love y'all dearly. And I'm appreciative of the time I get to teach you. Um, so what uh, my wife does has some of her encouragement because my, my wife's job, besides being amazing and beautiful and, and a mother to two kids uh, that one day may take both of our sanity, is she's an encourager, right? She's my rock. I've said it before. She's my compass when I'm lost. She's where my shoreline, that kind of stuff. And her encouragement is usually found in letters. So she is a great letter writer. So I, I find letters periodically, uh, sometimes in my lunchbox, sometimes in emails, and I get uh, told like, hey, the, the day is not lost. Because I'm preaching stuff to you right now that really there should just be a mirror. Right? I'm, I'm glad that you're cathartically letting me work out my own problems to you in a public venue and then we tape it and push it out. There's probably a lot of people think or wonder why you follow the crazy guy that yells on Sunday nights, but I'm thankful that you're continually coming. And I'm reading through this letter today when I'm thinking, I don't, I'm, I know it's well, because there's a sign that says it, there's a song that we've already established that sings it, and I know it's well, but I'm tired of it not being okay. I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm just flat tired. And one of the more, more beautiful things um, that she has said, that she said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, is that we struggle well so we can struggle well. We struggle well so we can struggle well. And then she, she, she played out beautiful examples of how God ordains our struggles so He can ordain our struggles. He, he says faithfulness leads to faithfulness. Beautiful submission leads to beautiful submission. So an example of that is she said, hey, we, deal, we dealt with infertility for four years where every month we were in our cars crying, we were on the floor crying, we were in our couches crying and saying, why would God put me through the struggle of infertility? Why does every month have to sting? Why do I see friend after friend after friend? Like baby announcements on Instagram really took off in the midst of our infertility, which is just a cruel joke of technology where everyone's having a gender reveal. Why would he put me through that kind of struggle? And at that time, it's because it's not okay. I know it's going to be well, but I'm tired of it not being okay. The reality is he's preparing me to lead a church that will deal with infertility every month. And now I can be a pastor of that church and say, I don't feel sorry for you. I'm not trying to be empathetic. No, I am you. I've lived through your trials. I've lived through your miscarriages. I've lived through the things that try to break our church. And those struggles, those, those times of hurt, God prepared us for so we can struggle together. That I can say, hey, I don't have the answers, but we don't, no one's going to cry alone. 
I don't know what's going, what God's going to call us to next, but I can promise you that He has called us to be faithful and to struggle well so that we can struggle well as believers side by side. Because you don't serve a pastor that's great at hugging, but you serve a pastor that can suffer well with you. And there's time and time in my life where I've seen that played through, and at time and time I've thought, God's lost His ever-loving mind. And he has taken his eye off the ball and he has forgotten about me. And time and time again, he has said, I put you through that because I need you over here and I need you over here with some experience and some street cred and the ability to cry in a dark moment. And Paul knows that. Paul writes about that. Paul understands that he can call us out and say, hey, you need to struggle well. And we have to believe him because we can look at Paul's life and say, he knows we need to struggle well because he's struggling well. He gives birth to the Gentile church that, newsflash, saves all of us. And he's not just someone who uses words in a romantic way. His words mean something because we can look at him and say, he struggled for the sake of Christ. His struggles had a purpose. Our struggles have a purpose. So that was my first point. <laughs> and my last point now, because that's what we can do. It's a small, intimate venue. We can ad-lib. Um, and I say all that to say... We are called to be faithful. I love Paul as an example. I love Paul because two things. He, he meant what he wrote. He said, yes, suffer because I suffer. But at the same time, he cuts out any excuse. Because the next excuse is, um, that's Paul, but I'm too broken. So as, as we conclude, as we close up this, I want to um, uh, correct any, any miss. Uh, understanding of, of your calling. You're like, I want to submit. I want to struggle well. I want to suffer well. I want to toil. But you don't understand, Tim. I'm just too broken. Brother, the person that's telling us to submit was a murderer of Christians. So like we said, um, the, the, the main two people, the main two players um, for, uh, uh, for the New Testament church would be Peter and Paul. And you can say, well, I know Peter, we kind of went through Mark. He made some bad decisions. I wouldn't call him the most loyal or he wouldn't be the tip of the sword. But when it counted, he said, yes, that's better than me. Um, uh, he, he saw that the, the tomb was empty and emboldened him. And that's better than me. And it's easy to compare yourself and be like, man, Peter's just on another level. I, I can't match up to that. And, and Paul, he is writing theology and he's so faithful. But don't forget where Paul started. Paul was the largest impediment to the growth of the gospel. He took joy in the killing of Christians. He took joy in, in the stoning of Stephen. He took joy in the martyrdom of the believer. No one here can say that. God was able to use his faithfulness despite his brokenness. And if there's anything in your life where you're thinking, I'm just too broken, and I can say this with complete confidence, because that's another thing that uh, God allowed me to do by leading y'all's church, is to say, like, I put it to the test, but you can't out the cross. You cannot out the cross. Your brokenness is not too much. If you do get over yourself, you're not too broken, you just don't want to say yes. You cannot outsend the cross. You've been called to live a life that is not your own. A ransom has been paid. Act accordingly.
I'm going to pray over us. We're going to come up and sing this, I believe, because I went way over. Um, and it's like the third time I've done this, but hey, we're reading the Paul, a letter of Paul, so it's going to happen a little more, and I'm sorry for that. So let me pray as our hometown band comes up and gets ready to sing the creed. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to suffer for your cause. God, I pray that we never lose sight of what we've been called to do. We have not been called to be comfortable. We have not been called to be complacent. We've been called to live a life that is not our own for your sake and for your glory. God, I pray that we have radical obedience, that we live in open abandonment to your glory for your ways, regardless of the consequences. God, I pray that we view safety as a joke and and faithfulness as the goal. God, I pray that the Spirit would walk alongside uh, the men and women in this room this, this week and embolden them to live out their faith. Embolden them to be the sons and daughters of God. I pray all this in your name. Amen.